Thanks for joining us for this Views and Brews podcast, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we get started, this is a, a little interesting Views and Brews because we we are recording a podcast for The Secret Ingredient. Has anybody checked out The Secret Ingredient podcast? Show him. Woo! Great. I posted a new show today with Breeze Harper, so be sure to check that out. I have wonderful co-hosts on The Secret Ingredient. One of them teaches at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. He's the author of Stuffed and Starved and The Value of Nothing. Welcome, Raj Patel. Thank you for coming. And my other wonderful co-host, who is followed by many here in Austin. I'm sure you know his work well. He is a food and agriculture writer for Mother Jones Magazine, Tom Philpot. Welcome. Yes. And we're going to figure out what the secret ingredient for tonight's show is a little later on. But our guests tonight to talk about hunger in Austin, feeding Austin's hungry, inclusivity, and all kinds of great things, are the food and policy manager for the city of Austin, Edwin Marty. Thank you so much for coming out. And also, assistant professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, Aaron Lentz. Thank you for coming out tonight, too. So I wanted to start tonight with a great quote. Raj, did you find it? No, never mind. We won't do that then. But I did want to remind everybody that, you know, tonight we're talking about feeding Austin's hungry, but the report that just came out mentioned that one in four in Austin are food insecure, which means that one in, there are tables of four here, so if these statistics are right, one in every four people has experienced food insecurity at one time in their life. So I think starting with that frame, knowing that this isn't an an us-them problem, but this is a problem that we're facing as a city and how to address it is a huge question that the city asked, that Edwin, you asked, uh, is something to remember as we begin. So Edwin, you're the one who recommended that Aaron and Raj, Raj is a dual, he's playing a dual role because he's the host, but he's also participated in one of the studies. Um, You're the one, Edwin, who asked them to put together a study about hunger in Austin. Can you talk a little bit about that study and and why you recommended it? Sure. So the food policy manager position with the city of Austin was created about two and a half years ago. And I came in um, very happily filling a role that was brand new to the city of Austin and, and for the most part, fairly brand new to cities in general. Very few cities have had staff positions to look at food systems sort of holistically. And so I came into the position and, and did a scan of what was happening nationally, looked at places like New York City and Baltimore and Seattle and saw that they were doing comprehensive food system planning, sort of thinking through what's the municipality's role in the food system and how can they best direct policy to address the major issues that uh, face the community. So we looked around and we actually had some help with a graduate student named Bianca Badu from the Sustainable Food Center who's also getting her master's at UT. And she had done a survey of food system plans across North America. And amongst some of her research, she saw some work that was being done in uh, Vancouver, Canada, which is technically not in America but still it's North America. Um, So we went with it and um, we realized that the work they were doing was very interesting. They were trying to look at how can municipalities support the work that's being done from a community level to address the issues of food access and food security um, and basically reflect the community's desires to create positive change 
on a very myopic community level. So we thought it would be fantastic as sort of a great way to step off our, our work with the city of Austin to do neighborhood food system planning. So we applied for a grant through uh, the American Planning Association in conjunction with a couple of other departments with the city of Austin. Um, and we got the grant and um, sort of surprisingly we got the grant and then looked around and like, okay, well, how do we do this? And uh, fortunately I just met Raj and met Aaron sort of simultaneously to applying for this grant funding and realized immediately that these were two of the brighter people that were probably hanging out in Austin in terms of thinking about food systems on a broad level and food access and food justice and sort of the core issues that we were really wanting to get to. And so um, started talking to them about how we could collaborate and they threw out the idea that we could develop a, a policy research project or a PRP through the UT LBJ school. And so um, threw that out and with a huge amount of cash thrown in their direction, <laughs> just kidding, um, <clears throat> with a whole lot of, uh, of this is going to be great, this is going to change the world, um, <clears throat> enthusiasm, they agreed to dedicate an entire year to uh, directing their graduate students towards this process of developing what we call a pilot neighborhood food system project where we look at one specific neighborhood in Austin, sort of explore all of the different assets um, around the food system, look at what the liabilities are, try to match them up, do some really in-depth interviews and outreach and try to understand what are the, the specific issues that communities in Austin face around food access and uh, food security. And then hopefully, you know, with their genius, um, tease out some recommendations that we could work with. So why don't we now kind of move into what exactly you guys found in this, in this study? Erin, after you. Oh, thank you. Well, so I think when Edwin came to talk with us, you know, we had a whole series of conversations and something, two things emerged uh, from his review of other cities' food system plans. And the first was that the ones that seemed to have the longest life were the ones that explicitly involved um, inclusivity. So that means talking to people in the neighborhoods about what they were looking for from their city food plans. And that meant talking not only to consumers, but also retailers and sort of a broad kind of swath of, of kind of local residents in the population. The second thing that really stood out is that very few cities plan at a neighborhood level. And if you think about Austin, there are particular parts of the city that are very different than other parts of the city. And the needs in certain areas are extremely different than other needs. And so for us, this was a really exciting jumping off point to the project itself. So we really started to think hard about how do we do inclusive food planning? Like, what, is, what, would, what does that look like? And we were kind of, I would say, feeling our, our way around as we, during the course of the year, to, to figure that out. And then what community could we focus on where we could really get a sense of what's going on in this particular neighborhood and what are residents in this neighborhood saying that they would like to see from their food system? So then you want to talk about conclusions? Well, uh, two things. First, uh, we'd heard about Vancouver being this amazing example of uh, inclusive neighborhood food planning where every neighborhood there'd been a, a great survey of what people wanted. But I was lucky enough to be invited to Vancouver and I talked to the people there and, and the process involved uh, young Vancouverites going around with little buttons on their shirts saying, ask me about food. Um, and turns out that that's not the best way of soliciting, soliciting a broad spectrum of opinions uh, from, uh, <laughs> from people whose first language isn't English or who aren't inclined to read lapels. Uh, so... Uh, Already, what that flagged, I think, was the myth of neighborhood food planning, uh, that actually you know, 
the, the story that Vancouver had magically read the minds of its citizens and then put together a, a, a magical food policy um, was belied firstly by the methodology, but then uh, also the, the fact that it was monolingual. And we ended up in north central Austin. Uh, by because of a range of factors uh, and led by uh, one of our fantastic colleagues at LBJ, uh, David Springer, who's here in the audience. Thanks for being here, David. Um, we uh, we ended up in North Central Austin, where the number of languages that are spoken are number in the dozens. Uh, you know, the, the the most widely spoken is English, then Spanish, then Arabic, uh, and there's uh, the, the the number sort of has a long, long, long tail. Um, and our findings were. The, the word inclusive is itself very difficult because if you're doing inclusive food policy, then food is included in the way people live in lots of different ways. Uh, it's not just about uh, is it organic uh, or is it affordable uh, or you know, does it have enough vitamin B12 in it? Uh, the, the idea of inclusive food policy is also, well, how does this fit if I'm making choices between eating healthily or paying rent? Right? You have to include things like housing policy. You have to include things like food policy. You have to in, uh, sorry, include things like income policy and, and uh, it, it, you know, sort of the, the basic structure of the way that the city is governed. Yeah, exactly. So for us, inclusive, inclusivity initially meant how do we reach a broad kind of swath of, of Austinites or particularly North Central Austin residents? But then also inclusive meant uh, that we needed to have kind of a, a much more kind of agnostic approach to what people maybe wanted from the city and from, for their lives. And so what that meant was initially we started out asking folks, well, what do they like about their neighborhoods um, through a series of focus groups? And it revealed all sorts of kind of interesting things about what people were excited about, but also revealed a lot of things that people felt were missing that wouldn't necessarily immediately register as food policy. And so something that we heard initially again and again, which makes a lot of sense in the neighborhood uh, where we were working, was sidewalks. And so ultimately our report was called Food for All, but we used to joke that maybe we should have called it Sidewalks for All because on and on, you know, there's this substantial challenge for many people who maybe don't have cars or who are part of a one car family. How do they get to grocery stores on North Lamar when there are no sidewalks? What does that mean? You know. And, um, one question I have is, so how did you collect data um, if you didn't send people out with lapels saying, ask me about food? Like, what was the actual method that you used? Um, we went out to retailers with a survey trying to persuade retailers to, to, to talk to our fantastic students, some of who are here tonight as well. Um, and then we had focus groups, uh, and they were organized um, by the city, particularly by the champion, Amanda Rolick, who's also here. Here, uh, here. And uh, who made bridges between different community organizations in the city. Um, and we had 12 focus groups with over 100 people in total. Uh, and those focus groups were then augmented both by one-on-one -on -one interviews with the sort of key experts. And then we went back and iterated our findings and said, look, did we get this right? And we had uh, a sort of five, que you know, five questionnaire thing about uh, here are the challenges and another five multiple choice questions about uh, uh, here are the top policies. And we, we sent that out not only in the Wednesday folders that the AISD, the, the school district here, sends out with, uh, w w you know, with its kids, but um, 
we had a, a, a workshop at a, a, a soccer game and an uh, immigration workshop, and we had an online uh, you know, accessibility of the survey, and we got a good cross-section to make sure that we got the answers right. Um, and so between the 600 responses for that and the focus groups and the rest of them, we, we, we feel like we got a, a good spread of people, and even that we know that it's not, it's not nearly enough. Right, and I think one of the things that, that we keep coming back to is the amount of, of kind of this is a this is a hard process, both in terms of, of you know kind of time to put in to kind of build the linkages with folks to collect the sort of data to find time to ask people to come from and step aside from their lives to actually come talk to us is also a very large time commitment. At the same time, it's also expensive, and we were fortunate that Edwin had received this grant because it enabled us to make sure that we could at least talk to folks in Spanish and then in English, and then we ended up having you know one additional focus group in another language, but we certainly didn't hit the dozens and dozens, right? And so this is one of the, the challenges with working in very diverse multilingual communities. How does one do this as inclusively as possible? And I think we're only scratching the surface here. Uh -huh. But there's, there's another question, which is, why is this a city problem at all? You know, like why we have got food banks, we have, you know, charity organizations through Whole Foods you can give to the Whole Kids program. Why does the city worried about feeding Austin's hungry? Why is it their problem? Because I care. <laughs> <laughs> the ethical thing Because I do? wake up and it concerns me. Um, beyond that, from a very personal point of view, um, I think um, when you look at uh, policy decisions, we don't have the data that we need to make good policy decisions. I mean, basically, essentially, when I started as the food policy manager and scanned what we knew about Austin and what we didn't know about Austin, I realized pretty quickly that we just didn't have the information available for me to stand up in front of city council and say, this is what we need to do, and this is where we need to invest money, and it's the best possible decision, and in 10 years, we're going to be able to stand up here and say, I told you so. We didn't have that information. I had a general vague idea about sort of, there's some massive inequity in Austin, but I didn't realize that 25% of the entire population of Austin is food insecure, and maybe 40% in certain pockets of the community. 40% of Austin in certain areas is food insecure. I mean, it's a staggering number to think about in terms of a city as wealthy as Austin. When I came to Austin, I thought we were gonna be, you know, eating like fantastic pork sandwiches and like drinking homebrew beer and like celebrating. And uh, lo and behold, my first couple months here, I was like, this landscape is a lot more like where I left rural Alabama than what I had perceived of Austin. So from a structural point of view, I didn't have the data. And so what I wanted out of this process was like, I need to understand a much more nuanced understanding of a very complicated city that's changing very, very quickly. And without that, I'm not gonna be able to make good recommendations. And the recommendations are around transportation policy. Why is it important to develop sidewalks? And sidewalks are the beginning. Why is it important to develop public transportation? This is not just about a feel-good story. This is about people being able to access the very basic things that they need to live their lives. And the sort of the, the, the story that hit me the most profoundly was that idea that a family that doesn't have a car in North Central Austin that needs to go get groceries is likely to get killed 
along there, like what they call the goat path route along North Lamar to get to the grocery store. And is in any way that an acceptable scenario that a family has to risk their life to go get groceries? And so from my point of view as a policymaker, as a policy advocate, as a policy recommender, I needed a lot deeper information to sort of understand that complex landscape about how do we how do we portray the actual scenario of what's happening in Austin, translate that into policy, translate that into budget recommendations, and get things done? But can I make a point, though, about that epistemology of hunger? I mean, a lot, a lot of how it is that hunger is known in Austin is via satellite. Um, the USDA has, satellite, I mean, has census and satellite maps of uh, the various census tracts of poverty and where the, the medium format grocery stores are. And from that data, they generate what is a map of food deserts. Food deserts are a combination of is this area poor and is it sufficiently far from a, a, a supermarket about a mile uh, in order to, to qualify as a food desert. And what was interesting about the area that we were looking at is that uh, parts of it were in a food desert in north central Austin and parts of it weren't. But everyone was saying, look, it doesn't matter that I can see the supermarket from my door. Um, it doesn't matter that uh, you know, the, the, the supermarket, uh, technically I'm not in a food desert, I should be fine. I'm not uh, because the sidewalks aren't there. And it, it was only by talking to people that that came to light. And the other way that I think that's, that's super important, you, you mentioned uh, food banks. Um, do, do you want to tell the food bank story about the, the IDs? Sure. So during the course of, of our initial focus groups, uh, we heard that food banks were requesting identification in order for uh, recipients to access them. This is, in fact, um, not policy. It's not, I think, legal. Um, and you can imagine who is unable to avail themselves of things like food banks if there are these ID requirements. And so what was really incredible is this kind of came up during a focus group. Uh, Amanda Rolick, Edwin's um, colleague at the Office of Sustainability, you know, sort of put in calls to the Capital Area Food Bank and we were sort of the change was immediate. I mean, it was sort of like, okay, actually, you guys shouldn't be doing this. Food pantry shouldn't be doing this. And I think that this is one of these things where I think unless someone is willing to really spend the time and, and dig, some of these very small, sort of easy changes, low-hanging fruit, are oftentimes just unseen. I mean, and I think especially when we're talking about marginalized communities, um, it's, it's quite easy to kind of miss those issues. So. One thing I think is interesting is that the, the research area that you, ch you guys chose, I think it's a fascinating area in Austin. And it, one of the things that it, um, it, it gets at is the sort of economic apartheid here. Because I think most people in central Austin hear about north central Austin, Runberg area, from reports on news about spectacular crime around the, the region of I-35 in Runberg. I remember a couple of years ago, the police uh, moved, put a, st a station there to put more cops in the area to crack down on crime. And, and that is the sort of image that the area has. But when you read through your report, what you get is this is where working people in Austin live. And it is not very close to central Austin where the jobs are. And so these questions of mass transit, I think this really gets at Rebecca's question, why it's a policy issue, because a food bank can't add an extra bus line or put extra buses in the road. A food bank can't get Austinites to vote for expanding the rail line or making the rail line somehow cheaper for people uh, where it does exist. 
And, uh, and so t- talk us through a little bit about that area, that sort of north central kind of Runberg area and what the demographics are, because I, I really think that, that people in central Austin don't know that much about it. And the sort of, you know, great pork sandwiches and beer really aren't out there. And if they do get out there, then I think we'll, we'll start to see what we see in central East Austin, which is displacement further out in, um, into even farther areas out. So yeah, just talk us through what it's like there and what and who lives there, what what the demographics are. So when Edwin was first describing, like, okay, we think we're interested in in looking at North Central Austin, and there's um, a lot of different reasons why North Central Austin made sense. He was trying to explain where it was, and I was like, wait a minute, that's where all my grocery stores are. I mean, and so the thing that I think of when I think of North Central Austin is this incredible diversity of amazing grocery stores like this is where I go to get curry leaves this is where I go to get dumplings like this is delicious I eat a lot it's great but I think that that for me I I didn't necessarily have this this kind of this preconceived notion of this place as being like this you know I I don't like particularly bad location until I mean and I wouldn't even call it that now I think it but from in my mind it was very much like it's a really car focused there are all these gigantic kind of shopping centers, but I didn't sort of, I didn't know, I didn't have a lot of preconceived ideas before we went in to do our work, which I think in some ways was really great because I think that meant that we were, I had sort of more open, I was kind of relatively open, open-eyed. Um, do you guys want to? Is anyone here from North Central Austin? Does anyone live in this area near Runberg? You do? Okay. Yeah, a couple people. Well, I mean, I'll just say that, I mean, North Central Austin is a, maybe the most complicated place in America um, from like having spent a lot of my time in the last year looking at the demographic information. I mean, it's the like culturally the richest place maybe in America in terms of diversity. I mean, as an anthropology student, I can say that. Um, And maybe one of the poorest places in America in terms of like people, working people being able to access the basic things that they need to live. Um, I mean, and then you layer on top. So very quick, short story. Uh, North Central Austin, cotton fields in the 1960s. Like cotton fields. You know, 10 miles north of here, 15 miles north of here, all cotton fields. Transformed to warehouse districts, overlaid with that. Pretty big industrial transportation systems, overlaid on top of that. Multifamily housing, overlaid on top of that. An attempt to provide people with multi- that live in the multifamily housing with basic infrastructure. So you have this like very disconnected sort of set of strategies. Like instead of like building houses and having things for people that live there, that's not the way the sequence of events happen in the development of North Central Austin. So, you know, lo and behold, like it's not a particularly functional place to live. I mean, it's a beautiful place in a lot of ways and there's a lot of incredible people that are doing incredible things, but in terms of the physical infrastructure, it is a very difficult place to exist. I mean, just trying to walk across North Lamar, trying to walk across any of the major corridors to get to things that are across the street, you're risking your life. I mean, each and every day you are risking your life and unfortunately the data supports that. So on top of that, you have this incredible like food explosion of like, I mean, it should be called, it's not a food desert. It's like a food explosion. It's a food celebration. Like there is better food in North Central Austin than there is in the rest of Austin combined. I mean, I would, you know, challenge any of you to a food eating contest. Um, I mean, really, it's like pretty it's phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, incredible. Yummy. And yet, the core piece of our neighborhood food system planning process was some work that was done by one of our interns, Sarah Stein Lobovitz, who's now, fortunately, an employee with the city of Austin. Um, oh, yep. Sorry. I get fired up. 
I'm gonna throw this. <laughs> so, um, so Sarah and a couple of other folks helped us do a uh, food uh, retail analysis where we went to every single we she and her friends um, went to every single food retail location in North Central Austin and analyzed the store in terms of its capacity to address food insecurity in the community. Does the store have fresh produce? Does the store provide uh, food assistance benefits? Uh, does it accept food assistance benefits, etc.? What's the kind of quality, general quality of the store? And it's an amazing sort of landscape to look at. There's a lot of places to get food and a lot of really good food. But if you're low income and you're dependent on food assistance um, to feed your family, you're going to have some challenges, um, and especially if you don't have a vehicle. And so what we saw very clearly was a lack of vehicular access meant that basically everything in your life was going to take a whole lot longer to do. And so if you're living in North Central Austin and you're a low-income community member and you're going to try to feed your family healthy food, it's just going to require hours and hours and hours of every single day. And that was a really important part for me as a, as a policy manager and sort of a policy thinker to look at, that poverty is not this sort of objective thing where like you make either $18,000 or $25,000 a year. It's a sort of a, a broad spectrum of a landscape where it's like these things are just going to be more difficult in your life. And when you live in North Central Austin, on top of being poor, you're confronted with all of these different things that are just going to make your life that much more difficult. At every single step, you're going to have to take three steps instead of one step. And so to make that, you know, the classic sort of healthy choice, the easy choice, that doesn't exist in North Central Austin. Yeah, I would just like to echo that. I think one of the things that we heard frequently from our respondents was about time poverty. People are really strapped for time. And if you're taking the bus to and from work, if you're trying to take the bus to the grocery store, all of these, if you have kids, you gotta pick them up from after school, like all these things take so much more time for folks who are low income. And so it's a really, it becomes this kind of um, multiplicative effect. Yeah. But it, isn't there a problem with looking at public transportation as something that the poor use? You know, the reason why public transportation works in cities like New York and London and in other cities is because everybody uses it, you know? So <laughs> I, I would say it's, it's tricky, right? Because it's like, is it, it, does it work because everyone's using it or is everyone using it because it works, right? And so we had this one respondent say, we'd all take the bus if it, if it, you know, if it worked well, right? And so I think there is this challenge of, you know, how do you get that critical mass? And I mean, I'm not a transportation expert, but I do think that I would take the bus if it was a little bit easier. And I mean, and I think there is this kind of, how do we, you know, how do we kind of get those to kind of dovetail together? Yeah, because that's not just a problem for North Central Austin. I mean, public transportation is almost impossible in this city. And I live right downtown, I can't get anywhere on the bus if, that doesn't take two hours, you know? Yeah, I hate taking, I mean, I, I love, I hate radius. driving. I'd, I'd love to take the bus, I hate, yeah. hate driving, sucks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so anyway. Did I just like totally shut everybody no, no, no. up? Well, You're like, but, well, but, not but, but even <laughs> even in even in that question, the idea of well, yeah, surely if if more than the poor took the bus, uh, things would be better. Right there is is an assumption that we had blown open quite nicely in um, in North Central Austin, which is the idea of the poor being homogenous. They're not, uh, and we saw that in a number of ways. I mean, for, for example, attitudes toward the police. Uh, there were a lot of people who were quite pleased that the police were around and stopping uh, sex work happening from near the the supermarket. But there were people who were undocumented who thought that actually having a cop right outside the the grocery store was the most intimidating thing that you could have in the major place that you could shop. Uh, so that idea of people thinking that 
uh, you know, people thinking of one mind in a particular place is already a, a, a trap that we, you know, that we, we, we were alerted to. And in fact, even calling it North Central Austin is something that came out uh, only after feedback from you know, reporting our findings to the community. I mean, initially, we started calling the area Rundberg after uh, the Restore Rundberg Coalition. And some of the residents of North Central Austin said, well, we don't feel comfortable being called Runberg. This is a, an area and a coalition that, that comes from the Austin Police Department. And for various reasons, that doesn't feel right. And that, that isn't who we are. And don't call us Runberg when we're not. We, we haven't had a chance in, uh, in, in naming ourselves. And that already is, uh, I mean, it's politically very slippery. But already, if you start calling North Central Austin Runberg, uh, you... You come with a relationship of power. And part of what we struggled with, and we began with, we're at the University of Texas at Austin, y'all. Uh, Sounds so convincing coming from you, Rush. Oh, don't, Indeed, oh, don't leave the city of Austin now. <laughs> come on now. Well, no, but, but, but you know, UT Austin has had fairly abject relations when it comes to communities of people of color and poor people historically. And we we didn't want to represent a continuation of, of those kinds of policies. Now, we know that, that many researchers, including, for example, the wonderful Eric Tang, uh, have been doing terrific work around this, but th there's still a legacy under which we operate that casts a very long shadow. And we didn't want to... I mean, the reason why we're calling North Central Austin North Central Austin rather than Runberg is because of some of the politics of naming and diversity that we came across through this process of research. I'll just, I mean, tee off that. Um, I think one of the coolest things that happened um, through our process was like when we first started to think about neighborhood food system planning, we're like, okay, there's 77,000 people roughly in the geographical area that we've circled to to look at neighborhood food system planning. We're not going to talk to every single person. We have very few resources despite a small grant that we got. Um, so what's our lens? What's our focus? And I think um, talking to Raj and Aaron about, you know, what's the end goal with what we want to do? what we wanted to do is we wanted to hear from people that were negatively impacted by the existing food system in terms of like, how do we structure our food system better? How do we make this system work better for the people that are most impacted negatively by this food system? And so we went through this process. I mean, certainly an imperfect process on many, many levels and certainly not something... <laughs> That's page Thanks, two Edwin. of the report. Um, an imperfect process on my part. Um, of developing this process, but really thinking very intentionally about how do we listen to people that don't normally get listened to? And when you go up into North Central Austin, there's a whole lot of people that don't normally respond to internet surveys in English. And there's a whole lot of people that mistrust a .gov email address. And there's a whole lot of people that don't see me as being a benevolent, wonderful, like, you know, champion of, like, the betterment of humanity. And that's something that's <laughs> difficult, you know, for somebody who is a benevolent <laughs> believer in the betterment of humanity. And so how do we... How do we structure like a fairly short, you know, very finite process of outreach through a way that we can actually hear what people really think? And I mean, the work that Raj and Aaron and all the students from LG, LBJ and the other folks that worked with us really helped us. You know, it takes money. It takes a lot of money to do authentic outreach. And I think that's something that, for me, was a real eye-opener, that you can't just go into a community and like put up a post and be like, hey, tell me what you think. 
Like that doesn't work. You have to have translation capacity. You have to have, you know, a, a child care. Child care. care. <laughs> you have to have, you know, incentives. You have to have a reason for somebody who doesn't trust you to come and at least, you know, have the door open. And so it was a very interesting experience to sort of see how the city can do things a little bit differently by sort of thinking through like this is going to take resources. We have to think this through three, four steps ahead to ensure that the resources are in place so that that table is basically set for people that don't look and talk just like me. Well, speaking of money and poverty um, and how you know poverty is also something that could be solved with lots of money as well. <laughs> um, well said. And, um, and one thing I think that is really important that is comes out very clearly in the in the document, and and you alluded to it, Marty, that th there's this um, there's this broad poverty is not a salary. Po poverty is this broad complex of things, and one of those things in Austin that everyone in this room, I bet, is very familiar with, and that is the the sort of uh, inexorable rise in rents. And I was just reading in the, I believe it's the current Austin Chronicle, about the homeless rate in AISD. The number of homeless kids has gone up for the fifth year in a row, even as the population of AISD students is declining. And the, so wait, so AISD students are declining at this time of incredible growth. What's going on there? And the, the reporter of this article puts it together very beautifully that these are related that um, as rents go up, and she has you know shocking figures about just between um, 2014 and 2015, significant rises in rents. I mean, this is kind of nonstop. Um, people who need to rely on public schools are being forced out of Austin, and people who can afford to not send their kids to public schools are not doing that. And so the population in ASD is shrinking. Um, and then, they, so the affordability crisis is pushing people who can't afford Austin out and out of the school system. Um, and then the people who are still here are increasingly forced into homelessness and to where we have something like 3,000 kids in AISD or uh, close to that uh, and, and rising for the fifth straight year who are homeless. And so rent is another one of the factors along with um, along with sidewalks and mass transit. And what are the policy levers that can sort of, you know, turn this housing crisis over a little bit? Is, is the city thinking about any sort of policy changes? I've, and I, and I, I've, I've got that. And I should also say <laughs> that this same problem is happening all around the country in fast-growing uh, cities and regions like the Bay Area of, uh, of California, in New York City, where the working classes of these areas are essentially being priced out of the city and, and pushed out farther and farther with less and less services like mass transit. So what kind of policy levers can we push here? And is there maybe a vote coming up at city council? I'm just, I'm just asking. And one, you know, one more thing about that study that I thought was really interesting was that this this doesn't mean there are a bunch of teenagers out on the street sleeping under bridges. It's homelessness looks like kids couch surfing and staying with their friends and sleeping in cars. And so it's, it, it's a really insidious problem because it's not as visible as we think, but it is, it's a huge problem. I mean, I, I think that both Aaron Raj can articulate this better than me at some level, but I think what I hear over and over again is that... Um, 
affordability in Austin is a is a deeply misunderstood phenomenon. And what I liked about the AISD information that just came out was it's working poor and it's kids that are suffering from the affordability issues in Austin. This is not a bunch of slackers that are just choosing to live a certain lifestyle. These are people that are working two or three jobs that are not able to make the things meet that they need to meet, AKA their budget, um, to afford food. And that's where it sort of circles back to me that, you know, we touched a big part of our neighborhood food planning process was recognizing that, that people can't afford good, healthy food. And it's not so much that just the price of the food is so high, um, because the USDA has been working for decades to make sure that we have the cheapest food possible in America. The problem is that all of the other pieces make it so that food is the only variable in your budget. And that's a really complicated thing to understand that when you think about like you're paying your rent, you're paying your electrical bill, you know, you're paying whatever other crazy taxes and things that you have to pay, which pay my salary. Um, <laughs> thank you, Austin. Um, but you get to the situation where the only thing that you can adjust in your budget is how much money you're going to buy. I mean, how much money you have to buy for food for your kids. And so that piece of affordability became sort of the, the really the most telling part of our whole food for all process that it, it was not so much that food is just expensive because you can buy cheap food. I mean, food can be very cheap, but you can't buy healthy food for cheap. And you certainly can't buy healthy food if everything else in your life is stacked up in such a way that you have to always push that food budget to the very bottom. Well, I mean, so this term healthy, though, is already loaded, right? Uh, that. Uh, everyone that we spoke to in our uh, uh, in our retailer survey, for example, was saying, "Well, there is kind of a demand for healthy food." Uh, and you know, we were asking, "Well, so what, what's your healthy food?" And and they would point to granola bars rather than frozen food, for instance. Um, and that for us was a very interesting data point that what passes for healthy is actually up for play. The idea of what is healthy isn't a fixed point in anyone's idea, in anyone's mind. It's being fought over. Uh, the, the food industry is grappling for the idea of you know, be able to, to cover its food in a halo of healthiness. Uh, and in, in that sense, healthy is the new natural, right? To, to, to be able to claim that your food is natural in some way uh, bestows on it some, some virtue. Uh, and healthiness is the same. But there's no real definition of what that is. And if granola bars pass for healthy, whereas frozen food does not, uh, that was, yeah, I mean, th th that's, that's a very worrying discover discovery that, that came out of our uh, retail survey. And I, I think that also echoes uh, Edwin's larger point where this idea of what's healthy is sometimes somewhat predicated on where you're able to shop. So if you're, tra if you're transportation constrained, if you're budget constrained, you're, you know, you're walking to your local corner store, what's in your local corner store? Well, maybe a granola bar is healthy in your local corner store relative to everything else that might very well be the healthiest item available. And so I think that this is 
I think this just kind of speaks to sort of all of these issues around, I think housing affordability is, is a fundamental challenge. And I think that this comes back to kind of when we set out saying, how do we think about inclusivity when we think about food planning? Well, housing affordability is a fundamental piece of that puzzle. And you know, maybe we were naive in thinking that it, it wouldn't come up quite as much as it has, but it's been, I would say it's, it's the fundamental kind of mechanism by which people are there having to experience food insecurity through their kind of, through the inability to kind of manipulate anything but their food budgets. And so I think I think Edwin's totally right. This is this is the the lever, right? And and so for example, you, you, one of the one of the sort of standard uh, system, sort of city food planning um, tricks or sleights of hand is to say, well, you know, clearly what we need now is more community gardens. Community gardens. Uh, it, it, people will just you know have their their, their patch of land. They, they will grow beans and squash and kale, uh, kale for the people and. <laughs> Uh, this will this will this will feed Austin and give them much needed vitamins, um, which is how it's pronounced. Nice. Uh, nice. Nice. But but I mean but, but one of the, one of the things that we found uh, was that people were saying no 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 community gardens are, are great for building community but they're rubbish at feeding anyone. Uh, th- th- but it, it's important to recognize, actually, community gardens are really good for building bonds, particularly uh, in refugee communities, of which there are many in North Central Austin. Uh, the, the, the gardens can be a place where you can grow something from a land that you may never see again. And it will be a place where that thing will grow and will remind you of home, and you, you can build a community around that. But you can't feed a community off that. And it's in the same way that, that we found that actually, yeah, food deserts. I mean, the, the easy way to, fi- to fix a food desert is to drop a supermarket in. But the hard way is to fix poverty. And that's something that's, that's much harder to do. But there is an opportunity to do that. Um, Right. Yeah. And and I think I mean, I think this is what what for us, I think, as as non policy makers, as as non city employees became so clear is that there are all sorts of really exciting and interesting initiatives happening at the city level. But oftentimes they're kind of siloed. And so it's like how to figure out what's going on. And I think working with Edwin was really exciting because over the course, we all kind of showed up in Austin roughly the same time. Like every time we'd meet with Edwin, he'd be like, I just met this really amazing person, or I just met with this great civil society organization. And it's figuring out how to stitch all those things together to get a coherent policy that is focused on poverty alleviation, that is focused on affordable housing, is much harder than it should be. But I think um, I think people, I like to think people are kind of thinking harder and harder about how to breach those silos. So I get, I'm going to put a question to my co-host Raj, and that is that the way that we have structured our show is the secret ingredient, whatever it is at an individual show, the underlying secret, ingredi- secret ingredient is capitalism, colonialism, and death, right? <laughs> um, One of those three This, is, this is foundational secret ingredient stuff. And when I look at this issue and you know, sort of step back from it, what I see here in Austin, and I grew up in Austin, and I um, spent a lot of time here, and I moved back after a long time a couple of years ago, and what I see in Austin is this microcosm of what is happening nationwide, and that is this you know, ever-widening gap between rich and poor, this sort of you know, massively growing inequality, 
and this sort of systematic underfunding of public services. And to me, there's no greater symbol of that than in Austin, in the city where it's you know, 90 degrees or higher for something like four or five months a year. It's 100 degrees oftentimes. Um, when it rains, it rains a lot. And when you go around the city and look at bus stops, nearly everyone is a pole driven into the ground with a, a sign on it, not even a bench, much less a shelter. And to me, that just symbolizes a sort of collapse of social democracy in the United States, that we don't make those public investments. And if you, are, you don't use services like that unless you absolutely have to. And so I guess my, my question is, what can city policy do to avert this, these grander forces at play here, these forces that are causing inequality that you know, we've seen inequality rising for 30 years, we've seen wages stagnate uh, at the median level for 30 years. How does city policy get in there and, and do something about that? Well, comrade. <laughs> um, Luckily, we're at a moment where um, there is a chance for people in the audience who are residents of the city of Austin to write to their um, local elected representatives. Or call. Or call. Or even show up. Or right? email. Or vote. <laughs> <laughs> or text. Send a smoke signal. <laughs> Whatever works uh, for your local elected representative, uh, because some of these issues are up for grabs in the budget debate that's happening in City Hall right now. Uh, but some of these issues are beyond City Hall. Uh, for example, I mean, this isn't to say that the city couldn't take a position, for example, on the need to increase SNAP entitlements. Uh, 80% of people who are on uh, SNAP, which is the, what food stamps are now called, and they're slightly different, but. Uh, 80% of those entitlements run out within the first two weeks of every month, and they're meager to start off with. Uh, to, to be able to insist that the city uh, raise, uh, advocate for the raising of that level would be important. To, frankly, though, one of the things that we found in, in our study was that people would just love to be able to sign on. Uh, to be able to sign on in Spanish, for example, means that you have to go through an English splash page. Uh, and English and Spanish cover but a, a fraction of the number of languages in North Central Austin, uh, to be able to have the city advocate and really make possible language, you know, the, the, the signing on for, for SNAP in other languages would be low-hanging fruit, and the city could do it, and the city would benefit. Uh, so th there, there are things that we can do right now, but SNAP is it, it's a stopgap measure. Um, we need to be thinking much more about living wages. We need to be thinking much more about social housing uh, because otherwise people are always going to be making the, the, the trade-off between rent and food. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to open things up for questions in, in just a moment, but one question, how is the city responding to this then? You know, how is the city responding to the study and, and what's going to be done now? So the food planning process was an amazingly timed process given that city council came back and asked me last April to develop a set of recommendations for how to improve food access. So we were just wrapping up our neighborhood food planning process in May or April and May and we had sort of four really sort of gritty things that we knew were an issue. We had awareness about food access, we had accessibility to food access, availability of food, 
and a magical number four affordability, affordability. <laughs> um, so those four things we knew were absolutely critical so we were able to translate that when city council asked the city council the city department of staff to develop a set of recommendations we spent the next three months vetting some ideas through local stakeholders through lots of of group interactions and sort of came up with <clears throat> about a hundred different ideas of what can we do in the city of Austin to really address these sort of underlying food access issues and you know some of this stuff Raj just pointed out, like, really big picture, like, change immigration policy, okay, like, destroy capitalism, okay, <laughs> so, um, we can't do that through city council, um, so, but what we did come up with was we came down to, after vetting lots and lots of different work, and lots of people in this room were, were critically important part of the process, um, we vetted 100 plus ideas down into six basic strategies for things that we recommended to city council that they could do to implement things to improve food access. So we wanted to basically um, do I'll run through these very quickly, do a food environment analysis, understand the actual landscape of food retail in Austin, how does the existing food retail impact the food insecure community? Develop a matrix, score every single food retail location in Austin so that we have a very accurate map and then do that every two years so that we have a longitudinal study so we can watch the transformation of food access across Austin across time. So we can do that. So the second one was develop a fund to fund really cool, innovative community ideas on how to improve food access. The third one, uh, develop a nutritious food incentive program to lower the price of food for the food insecure community at food retail locations across Austin. Fourth one is develop better access to community gardens and commercial urban agriculture in Austin. Fifth one is develop a coordinated messaging campaign to make sure that everybody that's eligible for food assistance programs knows it and knows how to access those programs. And the sixth one, the most challenging one, was develop a program we've, we've coined as uh, safe access to or safe routes to markets. How do we make sure that our policy reflects the need, the very basic need for everybody in the community to be able to get to basic food retail locations? So you put all those together. It's about $2 million bucks. It's a couple of staff time. We presented that to city council. And now it's up to you. And the vote is when, do you know? Friday. It's Friday. <laughs> so people could show up in voice they support could. on the ground. I think that's a very effective way to do that with City Hall. But they could also email their, con their um, congressman, their city council member. Lamar Smith doesn't give a shit. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you think is going to happen? I'm, I'm sorry, have I said something controversial? <laughs> it's a podcast, it's fine. But you, so, so what do you think will happen? So do you think this is going to pass? Do you think this is going to go through? Or do you think this is like pie in the sky... This will never happen in Austin, but it's a great idea, and good job, guys. We're going to do all of this. We're going to do all of this because it's really good, sound uh, policy, and it's a good, sound direction for a city to move on. Every single thing that we've proposed is based on really extensive best practice research of other places that have tried it and done it and succeeded, and it's based on what people in the community said was important. It's based on what community organizations are already doing. So all the things that we're proposing are very doable. Nothing is going to solve poverty tomorrow. We've spent hundreds of years developing a very inequitable, inequitable infrastructure in the city of Austin and in, in you know across America. We're going to spend the next couple of hundred years redeveloping the way that relationships happen. This, this set of six strategies is one simple way to start 
sort of looking at the way that we relate to each other in the city of Austin and start to sort of think about things on a deeper level, it's not going to solve the problem, but it's certainly a way to think about long term in 10, 15, 20 years, what do we want the city of Austin to look like and how can the people's perspective on how to solve problems for themselves start to float up. So one of the things that just kills me about food policy across America and internationally is this idea of like, there's going to be nine billion hungry people in 10 years. What are we going to do? How are we going to like create a chemical to solve the problem? And it's like, there's already food to feed all 9 billion people. Am I channeling my inner Raj Patel right now? Um, so all we have to do is like go like empower people and stop stopping people from solving their own problems. And so all we're trying to do with these sets, six set of recommendations is like create the foundation for data to support investment in communities and to empower people to solve their own problems in a way that makes sense for them. And it's really easy to say that. And the next couple of weeks will be a little bit more challenging, but hopefully you and the general public will do something to enact that. Well, we'll see. Let's open things up for a couple questions. Just raise your hand, and uh, Jack will come along with the microphone, and you can, you can ask whatever you want. Hey, guys. RNA with Little Herds. No bug questions tonight. Um, so you mentioned the, the, the encouraging the SNAP benefits and, and farmers markets and urban farms. I'm interested what the city can do to get urban farms into other areas around the city. East Austin's a great place to find ur you know, urban farms. Where else can we encourage urban farms and farmers markets that can get that access to people in all different parts of the city? Do it, Aaron. Do it. <laughs> Well, I didn't have an answer for this question. Um, <laughs> so I think there's a real tension here about how do we how do we balance what what the you know what the city wants, what it, what its residents wants in terms of affordable housing and other uses, right? And so this isn't to say this is urban farms versus affordable housing because I think that's a extremely oversimplistic kind of way of round the way land gets allocated and used. But I do think there's a really big challenge that the city is facing where there has limited access to land that it can develop. And the question is, what does the city of Austin want to do with that land? And I think, um, I mean, Edwin, I don't know if you want to chime in on, on this in terms of... I have no experience. Okay. <laughs> Edwin doesn't know urban I've spent a lot of my life developing urban farms. And I mean, just to tee off what Aaron's saying, like, I mean, Austin has a absolute housing crisis. I mean, there's no other way to put it. I mean, we have 50,000 units short of affordable housing for the people that exist here today, much less to say the 135 people that are moving here tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow. I don't know what road they're going to come in on, but I mean, we have a lot of people moving to the city each and every day. And so as much of a, a proponent as I am of urban agriculture and of local food production, I mean, I think you have to look at sort of the hierarchy of need in terms of how do we make sure that everybody has a basic place to live in, in and a place to live that that provides the, the community members access to the things that they need to have a high quality life. So the fortunate thing is that we have a way 
to balance that equation, but we haven't had the conversations, in my opinion, that lead to the elevated solutions to, to understanding the complexity of the issue. So where are the opportunities for increasing urban agriculture? I mean, the city owns right. a ton of land. Absolutely, and I think there's a lot of really interesting potential for, say, marshland or for land that floods periodically that would never be suitable. You wouldn't want to pave over that land, but what could potentially be a place where maybe once every 10 years there's an epic flood and that's kind of built into business to business models for urban farms, et cetera, but could be really exciting way to use land that maybe couldn't be developed for housing, for example. Yeah, and then there's a ton of other properties. I mean, we're doing pretty extensive research right now on all the different opportunities for utilizing City of Austin property, either floodplain or non-floodplain property, um, and looking at AISD, you know, has a fair amount of property. Austin Community College has a fair amount of property. Travis County has a fair amount of property. A lot of the property that you, the general public, own could be converted to uh, commercial urban agriculture production and really increase the access to, to fresh, healthy, affordable, good food. And that's one of the things that got to me too about our recommendations is this idea that only rich people eat, get to eat or, you know, fresh organic food is just criminal. And it's, it's a mindset that needs to be shifted radically. And we're working on some stuff that's really excited, working with the uh, Farm Share Austin, or Austin Farm Share and uh, Sustainable Food Center, a couple of other great groups around town, um, Go Austin, Vamos Austin, looking at how do we get the highest quality locally produced certified organic best food on the planet into the hands of the people that wouldn't normally be able to afford that food i mean that's my goal and that's my job is to try to figure out how do we balance these things how do we sort of create a landscape where it's not like the certified organic farmers don't want to support low-income community members there's nothing farther from the truth but unfortunately like the vast majority of organic farmers that i know are eligible for snap and that's the situation that has to change. And so how do we create, from a policy point of view, a landscape where farmers are supported better, where low-income communities are supported better? And I think that we have some really exciting things that are just starting to bubble up to the surface here in Austin that might provide national best practice for how do we do that. Yeah. Another question? Go ahead. Hi, guys. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking about this issue. It's really close to my heart. And I was wondering if any of the conversations are around public school lunches, maybe possibly breakfasts as a way to give access to all of the public school children healthy food during those meals? Um, certainly when we did the focus groups, the biggest word in the word cluster was school. And that's because a lot of the information that people get about their food uh, and nutrition is from schools. Uh, the family resource centers, which is a, a fantastic system that the, uh, the Austin uh, independent school district has for knitting together lo a lot of support services for families, uh, particularly low-income families, uh, are located in schools. So schools get to be a place where you can uh, enroll in SNAP and in Medicare and Medicaid, though of course they, they, they've made it much more difficult now because the enrollment seasons are slightly off balance in terms of months. But people think about schools very centrally. Um, but th for example, one of the things that came up was oh, I don't know what you're yeah. going to say. Oh, no, summer idea. feeding. We, <laughs> so we finish of, each other's sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So one of the one of the things that came up um, was how not only is Austin a city where SNAP and WIC enrollment is lower than the state average, which is lower than the nation average, 
but also that you know there are a lot of opportunities for summer meal programs that are basically left on the table. Um, either, and this is, comes back to the silos, silos, silos issue, where it's incredibly hard for families to access some of these summer pro, these summer meal programs because they maybe have to take a bus to the school to get the meals because they're not dropped off someplace more centrally located. The Department of Transportation changes their bus routes sometimes in the summer to get kids so that they can get, say, to pools or to parks. But if the meals are somewhere else, then they're sort of, you can see this is where there needs to be a lot more conversations about how do we knit services together, especially for folks who are the most at risk of food insecurity, the most um, sort of, or kind of most struggling with poverty. I mean, just to tee off that, then, I mean, Cap Metro is certainly, you know, our municipal uh, public transportation system wants to to provide the absolute best services to the people of Austin. And I don't say yeah, that absolutely. just because I'm like a municipal official. Um, <laughs> Cap Metro is a separate organization from the city of Austin. Um, but they truly are trying to figure out a very complex environment. And they've done some really innovative things. Cap Metro was one of the first organizations in the country to develop a grocery store route in response to the Sustainable Food Center's sort of study on um, access denied. They looked at how can public transportation better provide that connectivity between grocery stores and low-income communities. And they developed a great program 10, 15 years ago that's actually one of the highest um, r highest populated routes in the, in the city. So that said, I mean, the challenges are so complex um, that Cap Metro can't solve a really poorly planned city. I mean, there's no way that you can, like, insert a bus route into the the maze of the infrastructure in Austin and just all of a sudden magically make it work. It takes long-term 10, 15-year, 20-year planning to sort of lay out that landscape and then to encourage developers as they're putting things into place to ensure that those systems are in place. So we're working on some really exciting things, just thinking about long-term planning in the city of Austin, which is just an absurdly crazy concept. But could we you know, look at, as people are developing new single-family housing on prime farmland, um, you know, tearing up prime farmland, forever gone, uh, putting in low-income, middle-income housing for people that won't be able to get access to grocery stores, and then ensuring that they're locked in this sort of box of poverty. Can we rethink that? I mean, is there any way that we can sort of think about, can we place food retail in such a way? Can we create transportation infrastructure? And can we encourage affordable housing to so that all of those things sort of are knitted together at the onset so we don't have to go back in and sort of look at a place like North Central Austin, which is in some ways like unsolvable. I mean, we need to like tear down like substantial amounts of the infrastructure in North Austin to make it just so that a bus can travel through North Austin in a sensible way, in a timely way to get people from here to where they need to be. And also, I just wanted to add to the, to the, to the question about school lunches. I learned from this uh, great op-ed by Aaron and Raj um, in the Austin American Statesman, uh, uh, which came out a couple of weeks ago, which somehow left Aaron's name out of the headline. It just says Patel, but it was a, a group effort. This, this He's a boy. Um, Some of us are more famous than others <laughs> of us. <laughs> no, but, but, uh, but there is sexism in this world, and it is just, yeah. it, it is just not fair. Erin and I put in equal effort, and it's not okay that her name is not, like, we, we had a great title for this op-ed. It was called Alimentary, My Dear Austin. Which is the last line of the... Of How the, awesome uh, is that as a title? Yeah. It, <laughs> Austin is expensive, it's dear, and we were dealing with the Alimentary Canal. It was awesome. Yeah. And anyway, but sorry. in this amazing op-ed, which everyone should look up and realize that Erin wrote 
co-wrote it with with Raj. Thank you. Um, it says that ninety four point six percent of people in a uh, kids in AISD. Uh, I think I have that right. 94.6% of kids in AISD are on free or reduced lunches. And earlier I talked about how... In North Central Austin. In North Central, in North Central Austin. Austin. But, okay, in North, in, that's an important caveat, but it's probably also really high for Austin in general. I'm not sure what the number is, but so not, almost every kid in North Central Austin is eligible for this, making, I think, the school lunch program extremely important uh, for this. And I have been encouraged to learn. Uh, I met the woman who runs ASD School Lunches. His name I'm forgetting. Annalisa Tanner. Yeah, and she is amazing. And what, you know, getting back to the question of the kind of confluence of national and local forces here. She is doing what sounds like miracles to me uh, with a very, very tiny federal budget. And so one way to think about the state of school lunches in Austin is to think about that reimbursement rate is what they call it. And the federal government now, as we speak, I think in the lame duck session may take up the school lunch reauthorization act. And um, the way that it's currently funded, school districts get less than a dollar per lunch to spend on ingredients. And so that is clear, and also very little subsidies for things like equipment. And most cafeterias, I'm not sure about Austin, but nationwide, most cafeterias don't even have equipment for cooking. And so I would just suggest everyone to also learn about that issue on a national level, and it is about to come up before Congress again. Of course, Congress is an extremely dysfunctional place right now, and so there's not much to be hoped for. Um, but th it is being reauthorized, and it is a very, very crucial question. I'll just, I mean, just pipe in that Annalisa Tanner with the AISD's school nutrition program is doing some heroic work. And just to give a couple quick shout outs that, I mean, the work that she's done recently, purchasing a significant percentage of certified organic local produce for every single child in AISD is phenomenal. I mean, my daughter eats certified organic local carrots every single Friday at her elementary school, and that is phenomenal, considering that the budget um, is is so minimal. I mean, to be able to make that work is incredible. And it takes vision. I mean, it takes people like Annalisa who are so dedicated to these are the things that we're going to do. And we're going to figure out all of the things that we have to do to shift to make this system work. So not only that, they're also, you know, installing uh, salad bars in every single elementary school this year. In three years, every single school in AISD will have salad bars. Um, just really, really cool, exciting work that comes from like getting good people in good roles. So, I mean, as much as we want to talk about policy and as a food policy manager, I want to think that my policy that I'm developing is the most important thing in the world. It's also about supportive community, like us as a community supporting our institutions to do the right thing, to hire the right people, to pay attention, to hold them accountable to their jobs so that they're doing incredible things because there is so much out there. We have so many resources in our community and to organize them correctly and to make sure that we're thinking through who needs those the best and who needs those the most is so important. So there's huge kudos to AISD and for a quick shout out, UT here also is doing some amazing work. We're working with the UT Housing and Food uh, Department. The food that's being served in the cafeterias here at UT is phenomenal. I mean, it's really 
really, really impressive. It's not the end all be all. It's not going to solve the world's problems. But the people that are doing that work are really thinking through how do we use the limited resources that we have to pressure the the food chain to, to be more transparent, to be more sustainable, and to make sure that the students here are getting the highest quality food they possibly can. So huge shout out to AISD and to UT for doing great work. And the, the city council, do they also cover other school districts, not just AISD? That's a complicated question. Um, there are many ISDs inside the city of Austin. There are many more ISDs inside Travis County. Some of our ISDs cover both the city and the county. So generally speaking, there's about three ISDs in the city of Austin, um, Maynard, and Del Valley and AISD, all of them are thinking through some of these problems. They're each uniquely confronted with different challenges. Del Valley ISD, for instance, has no grocery store in the entire ISD. That's 175 square miles in case you were out driving around today. 175 square miles. The entire Del Valley ISD does not have a grocery store. That is something that we need to confront as a community. I'm not 100% certain that the city of Austin needs to write a check to a grocery store to get a grocery store into that Del Valley ISD, but we sure as hell need to be doing something to think about how do we push that. So the recommendations that we put forward to city council are uh, a beginning to that conversation. How do we think deeper about why is it that so many people in Southeast Austin who are low-income minority communities are absolutely in proportionally, disproportionately impacted by food insecurity and the infrastructure that exists in our city. Uh, let's take two more questions. I recognize that there's a uh, there's an assumption built into this question, but um, it, and it assumes that there's mobile phones in these communities. Um, has there been anything done in technology space? You know, there's like Favor, Uber Eats, you guys are talking about. It's hard to put a bus line in there. What about like the modularization of being able to ship food to these places where a person might only be one mile away, but some kind of Uber for these, Uber Eats or Favor for these neighborhoods, has there been any exploration into that? I recognize mobile phone technology is a precursor for that to happen and internet access. The assumption is... I worry part of the problem. When we were doing our survey validation, there was a real difference between the people who res res responded to the survey online and the people who responded in paper and the people who responded between English and Spanish. And the people who clicked their way through a survey, uh, one of their major concerns about the North Central Austin area was the homeless people and the, the, the trouble that they were causing. And for the, you know, the number one concern for people who were coming in with the paper surveys was much more about affordable housing and uh, being able to have enough time and money to be able to find the information that you needed. And I worry that if one tilts towards the digital realm without understanding the analog one, uh, and if one recognizes that uh, already by inscribing an app as the solution without understanding the context in which an app floats, uh, you can you can end up catering to a population that is part of the spear tip of gentrification, and I mean you know here we are at the Cactus Cafe. There are majority you know there are lots of graduate students here. The grad graduate students are a stormtrooper of gentrification, um, uh, and 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 so to, to I, I worry that that apps 
might exacerbate that. So this, I, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't denigrate the possibility that there might be an appropriate technological solution, but sometimes the technology is paper-bound, and sometimes the technology is about the meeting, and sometimes the technology is about gender equality rather than about uh, food on app. And um, also, a quick shout out to um, Ari Roth, who runs South by Southwest Eco, and he'll have a lot of pamphlets in the back because you'll be continuing this discussion at South by Southwest October 10th through the 12th. So make sure you talk about him, especially that just tipped me off to talk about technology, that question. Um, let's take one final question. Oh, yes. All due respect to the panel. I just want to say that I'm Nubian Queen Lola's Cajun Soul Food Kitchen, and I've been working with the homeless all throughout the community. Yeah. And I definitely, I definitely got to say that I applaud you for what you're doing, and I'm, on, I'm north, south, east, and west. I'm all through the community. I have two buses going through, and I thank God for Johnson's Farm, uh, Jeremiah World Famous Eggs, and Tyson Chicken, they donate all the organic stuff, and I cook, and I feed over 1,300 homeless people a day. And I wish that I can do a whole lot more, but the only reason I can't is because the restaurant is really holding me back, and I wish it was away. Because you're right, the food got to get to the people. It got to get to the children. I'm feeding children on the park at uh, bars and girl clubs. I'm going after school, catching the kids along the way. Yeah, there's so many hungry people. Not only outside, but they inside of their homes. I'm going into apartment complex, feeding hundreds and hundreds. I mean, and I don't have government fundings. I don't have anything. All I have is prayer, love, and I cook with from my heart, not with my hands. This is such an emergency to everybody. It, I mean, the hungry, when you go under the, under the bridges, you ought to see the people, how they running. They, it, it's like they're in a, a, an illusion trying to get to the cold water because nobody's giving out no cold water. I'm not giving out sandwiches. I'm giving out hot, cooked, organic food, food for the soul, for the heart, because I've been homeless my own self. And I also come from one of the poorest states in the United States. So homelessness means a whole lot. I have a compassion for it. And God gave me a gift to go out and feed everybody. I don't just feed the homeless people. I feed the rich, the poor, and whosoever will because the food is so delicious. People be chasing me on the bus. I'm serious. And they cars with their grandmother, their granddaddy, old people. Yeah, we got to get this food to these people, especially the ones that's under the bridge and the kids that's coming home. One woman was wailing at the arch because, why? Because my bus had broke down and I couldn't get to the arch in time. The woman was wailing. I said, ma'am, what's wrong with you? She said, I've just been waiting for y'all because there's nobody really feeding the homeless hot cooked food. Everybody want to give them a sandwich and think that's okay. Well, that's okay, but it's not okay. How many sandwiches can we eat in one day, in a year's time? Give these people what, these, what we want to eat. I want good food. I taste and I eat everything that I give to the people. And if, I can't, if it's not good enough for me, I promise you I can't give it to them. We got to start feeding these people and giving these people what we want for our own self, your clothes, your shoes. They need all of that. What we really, 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 really need more than anything, we need a great, big, old, huge, forget this little individual housing stuff, we need something as big as an apartment complex. I worked with Katrina when they came with Katrina, and I seen what Austin did with Katrina, and that was thousands of people. If we can do that very same identical thing, 
it can work. And it won't work no other kind of way. We got to quit putting these homeless people in the hands of other people and put them in our heart and let's walk with them, let's talk with them, let's run with them, and let's go the last mile of the way with them because they deserve every opportunity that you deserve and I deserve and everybody else. God bless you and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I think that speaks to you know the title of this show, The Secret Ingredient, which I think the secret ingredient would be inclusivity, as we talked about before. You know, it's about dignity, it's about the human experience and making sure that everyone has access to that. So before we go, maybe everyone could leave us with just uh, one, one little snippet on hunger in Austin. <laughs> what are you going to leave us with? Rod. It's not good. <laughs> Edwin, what are we going to vote for? He's a city official. He can't say. <laughs> I can't tell you to advocate, but I can tell you um, there's a lot of great stuff we can do, and there's a narrative that the city council doesn't have any money to do that great stuff, and you might want to ask them about that. Yeah, I would, I, I would close on... <laughs> Budget's happening on Friday. This is the time to stand up and encourage inclusivity and encourage food for all. Yeah, and I guess I would just add that this really has evolved into an amazing food town, right? I mean, it's a great food town. There's a lot of great restaurants. And I think that is fantastic. There's a lot, a lot of great places to get coffee. There's craft cocktail bars. And I love all that stuff. But let, let us not... let's. People who have access to that and sort of uh, swim in that water, let, let's not forget that one in four people in the city, including a class of people that do the work in the city, that's not, do the sort of, that sort of make this city run, don't have access to that. And let's keep the conversation going, keep looking for solutions, keep experimenting with policy, keep studying this question, and keep it at the forefront of the conversation. Otherwise, it's just going to continue to sort of lurch along as it, as it is right now. Are you saying we shouldn't be diluted by our own hipness? Well, you can be if you want. <laughs> you <but. can. laughs> well, Raj and Edwin, Aaron, Tom, thank you so much for coming out and talking with us about Hunger in Austin. And thank you to everyone for coming out this evening. This was a really wonderful turnout and a great conversation. Please vote. Please keep up with the conversation. And let us know at The Secret Ingredient what you want to talk about. And uh, check out the Views and Brews podcast. So have a wonderful evening. And thank you so much for coming. You've been listening to A Views and Brews, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas, for KUT Radio. You'll find a complete archive of all of our Views and Brews in the iTunes store, or go to KUT.org for more information. Thanks for listening. During challenging times, you count on KUT to deliver the accurate and essential news and information you need. Show your support today for the service you rely on every day with a gift in any amount at KUT.org. Thank you.